Welcome back to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined by my co-host, Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital. Rick, how the heck are you? I'm doing great. It's a sunny day out here in L.A. All is good outside as people are starting to go back outside. Yeah, except for the fact that here in New York, it's like the first day of spring and everyone I know is hacking like crazy from hay fever and allergy season here. All right, listen, we're going to get into it. We got a lot to talk about as it relates to the stock market. Obviously, the bond market is telling us something in front of the Fed's meeting that started today, Tuesday, and we're going to get their rate announcement tomorrow. So you and I are going to dig into that, what that might mean for markets, both public and private. Also, stick around here after that market conversation. I sit down with Adam Singolda, the CEO, founder of Taboola. We talk about his founder's journey going from the private markets to the public markets last year and his view of the open web, free speech, all that sort of stuff. So we get into it. All right, Rick, let's talk about it here, man. The Fed is meeting right now, as I just said. They're going to announce what is likely to be a 50 basis point hike of the Fed funds rate. Their last meeting they raised in March, 25 basis points. So that was the first raise since 2018. What's interesting about this 50 basis point raise, okay, they're coming off of this zero interest rate bound, which they went to at the start of the pandemic. This is going to be the first half point raise you ready for this? Since May of 2000. And I think you and I touched on that a little bit last week. So talk to me a little bit. If you were a stock trader or you were just in public markets, you're on the edge of your seat for the next, let's say, 24 hours or so waiting to hear if the Fed will surprise. Where might they surprise? Somewhere in the statement about quantitative tightening, maybe about one and done, maybe about the other way. Maybe they say, we're going to continue to hit this hard. So just because Fed funds is pricing in a near certainty of a 50 basis point rise, there still are some potential surprises. How are guys and gals in your seats running VC funds? How are they thinking about this rate hiking cycle here and an announcement we're going to get tomorrow? So obviously, as VCs, we're thinking further in the future. So we think not in terms of hours or days, but in terms of, frankly, years and decades. But still, we have to keep an eye on it. A lot of what goes on in the public markets and a lot of what happens with our exits is IPOs or even sales has to do with the tenure. In my Apple stocks, I'm always looking at the tenure as a signal of being reversely correlated with all my tech stocks. And so we're looking at it and we're hoping that the Fed, no different than last week's episode, doesn't overcorrect. We talked about May 2000, almost 22 years ago, that they overcorrected at the beginning of the tech crash. And hopefully they don't overcorrect now. They do the 50-point raise. There's going to be some quantitative tightening. That's all expected and priced in. But anything more dramatic, I would view as an overcorrection. Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting, I mean, overcorrection is probably a bit in hindsight right now. And so back in 2000, what the Fed was trying to do was slow down an overheating asset bubble. At the time, people thought the economy was very strong. And I think what's different about 2022 is that the Fed has layered on trillions of dollars onto their balance sheet. And so that's when we talk about quantitative tightening is basically rolling off some of those assets, mortgage-backed securities and treasuries that they've been buying for the last two years and reducing the size of the balance sheet. But here's the thing that's different, Rick. Back in 2000, when the stock market was raging, interest rates were high. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield got nearly to 7%. So when they started lowering interest rates- April one 2000, it was over 6%. Which is just insane. So we're thinking about where did we go in the financial crisis? Fed funds went to zero, but the 10-year actually never got below 2%. 
and it didn't get below 2% until all of those rounds of quantitative easing that we saw in the years after the financial crisis. So I guess what's different this time is that we've been so low for so long. And the lesson of 2018, where we thought that the economy and the stock market could deal with interest rates going higher, we saw the 10-year above 3%. This was in the second half of 2018. And in Q4, the stock market went down 20% in a straight line, which caused the Fed to pivot. So I guess my point to you, and I guess I'm asking the question, if the Fed were to raise 50, say they're going to continue on this path and the stock market were to go lower and we're going to see some weakening economic activity. You and I did not get to touch on that Q1 GDP print, which was a negative print. We saw ISM, which was a bad print, worse than expected on Monday. There's just a lot of data that could be going lower at a time when rates are going higher, where the Fed has basically lost control. And that's what Guy Dami says all the time on, on the tape, is that the Fed were dying for inflation to be higher in the lead up to the pandemic. Careful what you wish for, which this is the thing, makes for a kind of murky picture, right? They're pulling on every lever. So obviously, we've talked about this before, that this is unprecedented time, coming off a pandemic, a war in Europe, and what is happening with inflation when we're uncertain about the supply chain? So what are the real numbers and what are normalized numbers? Nobody knows. So how much do you really want to play with interest rates when no one knows what a normalized economy looks like? The Fed wants to raise rates, if nothing else, so they have the ability to lower rates later. And we're still at 3% at historical lows aside from the pandemic. So by taking rates up, they always have a chance to correct themselves but they might be overcorrecting just to overcorrect later, which seems like they're just spinning knobs and dials. Yeah, and I guess the point I was just say, I was on Fast Money last night. We were talking about this. And the question was, we had a decent day in the stock market. There's a lot of whipsaw action. I don't know if you're watching, not the way I am watching minute by minute here, but day to day, you're just seeing crazy price action. You know, Into the close on Friday, the S&P was down 3%. The NASDAQ was down 4%. That was on the day. The S&P closed down April 9 The NASDAQ closed down 13%. The NASDAQ is down nearly 20% on the year, and the S&P is down 12%. So the question is, given all of the uncertainty that we talked about, but more importantly, the Fed raising rates because of the inflation issue, because of the supply chain issues that are making the inflation issues worse, and just the throes of uncertainty that we have, the Fed really can't pivot the way they did in 2018 and get too dovish right now. So to me, I think we continue to have this whipsaw action in the stock market. But you tell me, Rick, down 12% in the S&P 500 after it was up 26% last year without more than a 6% peak to trough decline last year. That's crazy. You're telling me after everything that we know about valuation, we're going to get to valuation in a second, but then all the uncertainty about the macro you think that the S&P is close to bottoming out down 12%? I don't think so. I think we're in unprecedented times. You've seen free money happen for the last several years. If you look back, the 10-year was about 70 basis points two years ago as the Fed was trying to correct for the pandemic. We're going to see a time we haven't seen in over 10 years and maybe going back 20 years. So you might see consumers feeling a little bit pressed by inflation. You might see corporations having to deal with supply chain and increasing interest rates. There could be another leg down. All right, let's talk about this tweet from Bill Gurley. He's a VC over at Benchmark, one of your peers here. And this was Friday afternoon. 
into the close, into that horrible close in that horrible month. He tweeted an entire generation of entrepreneurs and tech investors built their entire perspectives on valuations during the second half of a 13-year amazing bull market run. The unlearning process could be painful, surprising, and unsettling to many. I anticipate denial. And that is not a river in Egypt. That's my little ad lib there. But his next tweet, and I thought this was kind of interesting, he said, previous all-time highs are completely irrelevant. It's not cheap because it's down 70%. Forget those prices happened. Valuation multiples are always a hacky proxy, dangerous to use. If you insist, 10 times should be considered amazing and an upper limit over that silly. Now, we've talked about that 10 times sales number. You and I have talked about that a lot on the pod. Give me your take on this because it was really interesting that Jeff Bezos quote tweeted this. Okay, so Jeff Bezos, the founder CEO of Amazon, who stepped out of that role in the first week of July of 2021, and he basically reiterated calling Bill a genius investor and basically agreeing with everything he said. And it's interesting that Bezos weighed in on that because that moment, When Bezos tweeted that, Amazon had just closed down 15% on the day after their disappointing Q1 earnings and Q2 guidance. Give me your take on this. Bill Gurley's obviously on the Mount Rushmore venture. He's done Uber. They've been in Snap. They've been in Riot Games. They've been in a lot of the greatest companies of this generation, and they've produced great returns. But before that, he was an analyst going back to the 90s when we were cutting our teeth and on the early tech teams. And he's been a student of not only tech, but also business models. And what we've talked about before on OK Computer is that this is going to be the revenge of diligence, the revenge of business models. And what you're going to see is differentiation based on things like quality of revenue, based on business models, based on margin structure, based on size of market that all seem to get thrown out over the last couple of years. And people were throwing broad-based, very high multiples on any kind of revenue. And what you're going to see is return of the people who were in deep diligence, the return of the people who were able to tell, going back to some old saws, the baby with the bathwater. And I think although he might seem like the old guy screaming to get off his lawn at this point, you're going to see a return to some basics, some fundamentals in venture capital, on company building, on building sustainable competitive advantage, and in the public markets, differentiation based on price. So I think that Bezos and Gurley, obviously, as great operators and investors, are correct here. And I think everything's going to need to be reset, especially for folks who've never seen a bear market before. And you can be 35 and be a professional investor for over a decade and never seen a bear market. I think we're all seeing some eye-popping stuff, stuff that we either never seen before, as Bill mentions, if you're new to the market, or you saw 20-some years ago and you thought you'd never see again. I'm looking today, Chegg, okay, the online education company is down 30%. Heading into last night's print, where the stock is now down 30%, it was down 80%, Rick, from its all-time highs a year ago in early 2021. And this is a consistent theme, obviously, with these work from home, work out from home, school from home, Teladoc from home. Teladoc was a disaster last week. Peloton, the whole COVID darlings are now getting destroyed. I haven't looked at Zoom, but all of those have really come back to where they would be as the world's gone back to normal. 
and I guess the point here is trying to pick a bottom. It's really hard because here's the thing. The fundamentals are going to continue to change. And so if you think about where we are, the consumer is still in good shape, right? Interest rates are still relatively low. Yeah, inflation is starting to cut into it. Unemployment is really low. Wages are higher. We're still in a good spot. Savings are still up. People have saved up for these trips to Disneyland this year and even international trips are up. So we're still in a relatively good spot. What we're going to see is a shift of consumption. So historically, before the pandemic, two-thirds of consumer spend was on services. And that was restaurants, air flights, all the things that make people's lives happier. And now you shifted to being at home, spending more time on hard goods, homes, appliances, all that stuff. And now there's pent-up demand and pent-up savings to go chase that once-in-a-lifetime trip, all the YOLO stuff that you love, Dan. And I think it's going to happen. Yeah, well, I'll tell you one thing. Right now, as I'm looking at my screens, and this was an unfortunate final call in Fast Money for me last night, I was looking at Expedia. The numbers were out, and they looked pretty good. And when we're talking about valuation, and this is just a really good point about the goalposts can move. This is what Gurley was saying, right? But also, the fundamentals are going to be really fluid. So to your point that we were just talking about with the consumer, everything feels really good right now, but that could be about to change. And so I'm looking at Expedia is down 15% right now as we speak. And it was outperforming the NASDAQ and the S&P and actually still is even down 15%. The stock is down 11.5% of the year. It has a very defensible valuation. It's trading on the out year. If you believe that out year number, that's the other thing, about 15 times, only about 20 times this year, multiple to sales. Again, this is a big company, so it's not something we're that focused on, but under two. And this is a service that I think, unless you feel that there's been dramatic pull forward in travel and stuff like that, the stock right now though, is acting like something that we think if you're being bullish on the savings rate, bullish on the U.S. consumer and all that sort of stuff, you're wrong. The price is telling you that something's wrong about what you think about the fundamentals. I don't mean you. I'm just saying one. I think you got to look to the future, not to the past. Because the other thing, so much has changed so quickly in the world. We forget in Q1, there was Omicron. No one was going anywhere in January. So this huge and American Airlines CEO has said they've never seen demand like that. And that demand started in March, the very end of Q1. So what you're seeing is the results not being reflective of the future. And I think you're going to see some of that play out. And there's uncertainty in Europe. You're going to see a lot of that play out of people beginning to make their summer travel plans. And the forward-looking numbers and the forward-looking environment might not be reflective of the way the world was four months ago. Let's just pivot real quickly, right? Because you and I are chat about this, it seems like every few days, but I think for our listener, it might be really interesting. It seems like there's no shortage of VCs who like to do those threads and stuff. And they're just talking about how things are changing. The ground is moving below the private tech market's feet right now. You've been saying it now for months that usually the lag for the public markets is six to nine months. At least that's what you've witnessed over the last few cycles here. Where are we? What's going on? And what are the knock-on effects? I know that you talk to a lot of founders. You co-invest with a lot of VCs. You talk to LPs. What's the messaging here around the private tech investment landscape? Because from my standpoint, this was a huge sentiment driver that was underlying the bull market in public equities for the last few years. All the excitement about the exits, all these amazing innovative companies that were backed by amazing investors like you and Bill. But that narrative has changed in the public markets. And my question is, where are we as far as the private markets right now? 
I think we're still getting step downs. Is VC Twitter no different than the USA Today? That's a lagging indicator of what's really going on. We're approaching a year of when we started sending out the smoke signals that the world was overheated, that rationality had left a lot of the deal dynamics and pricing. And we're approaching six months ago when everything started to crack in the end of the fourth quarter of last year. We definitely at that point said, hey, the world's changing and you got to get up and you got to figure out how you're going to change. The best management teams saw that were very market aware and corrected in terms of their 2022 plans or capital planning, et cetera. The worst ones are still wondering what happened. But as we think about it, and I'm spending a lot of time with a lot of founders, I've spent a lot of time with founders of multi-billion dollar companies over the last couple of days. I'm actually out in Los Angeles now at Milken, where there's a lot of Fortune 50 type CEOs. And I think everybody is now saying the cost of capital has increased tremendously, and we're taking time to rationalize our business. And especially during the pandemic, where it was uncertain about how should we think about our employee base, how much flexibility should we give to our employee base, even folks' direct reports who, when they weren't in person, it was really hard to get a read on how good they are. People were saying, as we get back to the office, as we're going to be held to a higher standard by an increasingly discerning market, let's make sure we're tightening all the screws and we have the best team on the field. So the best managers are not letting a good crisis go past. They're saying, hey, this is a bit of a crisis in the financial markets. We're unsure what's going on. So let's take a time to be really self-reflective and really think about our market, our team, and where we go from here. And if we have to make changes, we have to think about who are the best players on the team. Can we upgrade those positions? Let's get ready to deal with what might be a recession. And that's the aggressive tact you're taking, even if you're a multi-billion dollar company producing a lot of earnings. So you're not even taking on financing risk. You're saying, this is an opportunity for me to be aggressive at a time where other folks are scared. You're going to see that play out in a couple of different ways. You're going to see that play out in maybe some churn in that employee base. You're going to see it play out where maybe employers are taking a slightly more aggressive tact where the employees had had a lot of leverage through the recession and through what was a very, very tight labor market over the last several years. And I think there's going to be almost the beginning of the employers having a little bit more leverage in the system. Yeah, it seems like we're already seeing some high profile. There was that fast situation. There was another one last week where you're seeing some companies that aggressively raised over the last few years. Basically, they started with a trickle of headcount reduction, cost savings, and then just kind of shut it down. Hopefully, we don't see that as a cascading situation. But it's not even cascading. I think it's even companies who don't have to worry about their business model or don't have to worry about their earnings are saying, let's take a step back and let's rationalize our headcount. Let's make sure we have all eight players. So even if you're not at risk, you're actually going back and turning all the screws on your business in a way that might not have been palatable during the pandemic. I guess the good news with unemployment so low and demand very high for those sorts of skilled workers in tech, it's probably not so bad of a setup for many of those workers who get displaced. So last thing before we get out of here, Rick, is over the weekend, Ethereum had some problems here. Yuga Labs, creator of Board Ape Yacht Club, they launched a sale of plots in their metaverse and things went haywire. And this is a really interesting situation because it seems like a massive disconnect 
between what's going on in all other risk asset markets and what's going on here. And we had Alexis Ohanian, your friend, on a couple months ago, and he and I made a friendly wager at the time. I think for Board 8 Yacht Club, we were talking about the floor price and it was 82 ETH at $3,000, and it's got nothing but up. I said lower a year from now. He said higher, and when you think of what they're building out here and what they've able to do in such a short period of time, they raised $320 million worth of cryptocurrency, selling plots of land, 55,000 parcels in their other side, virtual land. I mean, talk to me here. The plots were 5,800 bucks each. You talk about what's a real metaverse, and we've talked about it's kind of a bullshit term that people are using as a catch-all, but what it is, is just a virtual world where people can do things, and it has their own currency, and that could be World of Warcraft or League of Legends on the gaming side, but it could also be Decentraland or or a Yacht Club on the crypto side, and I think a lot of these virtual worlds or metaverses are going to create their own currency, are going to create their own real estate, are going to create their own worlds. And this is the beginning as the most high profile one. And what you're going to see is that some of those guys taking their tokens off Ethereum and creating their own currency. And I think that'll be a drag on ETH over time. You're also seeing from an investor perspective at a time where you can't draw a straight line into, I can invest in this company today and a year from now it's going to go public and I'll make three times my money in three years. Very tactically, a lot of folks who have been sitting on the sidelines saying, hey, there's not a tactical path to drive returns. I'm going to buy the lottery ticket to be able to say, I might not be able to drive tactical returns, but if I invest in Board 8 Fiat Club, if I invest in a metaverse play, these could be 10, 20, 50x returns. So I'm going to play the high volatility optionality by getting early into certain metaverses. And I think this is the first metaverse which seems to be taking off. And like all currencies, it's a game of confidence, whether it's the US dollar, Bitcoin, or now all these emerging cryptocurrencies, the ability to get people to buy in, the ability to create a strong market on the supply and demand side, and now the ability, whether you believe it or not, to do something with it, like buying land or buying NFTs, is pulling together those whole economies. It's just kind of funny to me, though. It just seems a bit of a disconnect again, like I just said, between what's going on. If you want to take an optimistic view about a lot of other areas of innovation within tech, this one has just not been rationalized yet, if you will. And if you think about, there's a lot of other projects out there that look very similar to this, but for whatever reason, they have not caught on or they haven't realized certain values. And I just wonder that some of these things like Board Ape or CryptoPunks, they seem to be crowded out by either very early adopters or by whales. And when you have someone like Alexis on who says that 90 some percent of these things are going to go to zero. And I just think there's a lot of fast follows. So I think for every metaverse that's created around a successful project like Board 8 Yacht Club, there's probably multiples of it that have just gone to zero, which I actually, again, it might be healthy to kind of advance these sorts of projects or the ecosystem and make it, I guess, a legitimate investable asset. 
But again, I'm just telling you this because we've been talking about it for a year now. Well, what came first? It was the meme stocks, then they crashed. Then it was SPACs, and then they crashed. And then it was recently unprofitable tech IPOs, and they crashed. Then it was Dogecoin and all these other shit coins, and then they crashed. And then there's been some reports of NFT sales. This was from the Wall Street Journal today talking about they're starting to see sales flatlining in NFTs. And once they start to flatline, they start going lower and they go to zero. And these are not liquid risk assets. It's not like logging onto your Robinhood account and being able to hate sell an altcoin or some shit stock. And that's just the case. And so I think there's another shoe to drop here. I think you're starting to see a lot of that 90% go away. So there is the creative destruction element. You go back, there was thousands of car companies and two or three emerged that captured all the value. There was thousands of TV companies a hundred years ago that were producing TVs in the US. A couple of those emerged and everybody else went to zero. In the crypto space, there'll be thousands of coins that have emerged and a couple will be worth anything. And I would say over 90% are going to be zeros. Bitcoin was the same thing. There was a couple whales who were supporting it. There were a couple people who were driving that credibility and hodling. And I think you're seeing the same thing in Board API Club. And I think you're going to see a couple of these coins and a couple of these virtual worlds that are going to be sustainable. I think it's too early to pick the winners, but it's not too early to pick the losers. And you're starting to see those losers emerge as well. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time getting your perspectives. As far as the markets are concerned, I just kind of leave our listeners with this, is that back in March, the last time the Fed met and they raised 25 basis points, it was interesting that about a day or so before that, the stock market, which had been careening lower, bottomed and had a huge rally, about 8 9%. It was sell the rumor by the news. And I guess what I'll be sitting on my hands waiting for is just to see if there's no surprises and we get a 50 basis point raise, then maybe the market does rally a little bit. We're really oversold. Sentiment's really bad. Some of these stocks have just been absolutely bludgeoned. But I think you kind of sell rallies. I think it's there's Qs and Twos and there's babies and bathwater ETF that we talked about last time. You're seeing consumer services that you feel really good about, especially travel, as that's rebounding hard. And there's going to be certain things, including the darlings of the pandemic, that are going to continue to fall. I think you have to say more broadly than the market, it's really a time for folks to do their work on what are the real leaders of tomorrow. No doubt. You're a leader of tomorrow. And just so you know, I mean, I know you want to trust the process here, but game one versus the heat. I don't want to talk about that. No, I'm just saying it's like, it's really hard to trust that process if you don't have Embiid in the game. The phantom of the process will be back and he'll lead us to victory in seven. I feel highly confident in that. Fair enough. I'm trusting it. All right, man. Well, listen, thanks for all of your insights. All right, stick around. When we come back, I sit down with Adam Singolda, the CEO, founder of Taboola. Dan, you're about 10 months into the Road Body program. You look great. It looks to be maintenance now. Congratulations. Give us an update. Yeah, well, I feel great too. So when I think about what I set out to do, I was looking to take about 15% of my body weight off through the Road Body program, and I've done that now. So now it is about maintenance. It is about nutrition. It is about exercise. It's about better sleep and really better habits here. So I can do this all in the app on the Road Body program here. And I'm really looking forward to actually taking these new behaviors into 2024 because I am feeling a lot better. Well, it's clearly working, Dan, and congratulations. And folks, if you're interested in learning more, go to road.co slash okay. You'll pay just $99 for the first month and $145 per month thereafter. 
If prescribed, medication cost is separate. That's row.co slash OKAY. Adam Segolda is the founder and CEO at the content discovery and advertising platform Taboola. Adam founded the company in Israel back in 2007 and is now headquartered in New York City. Adam started Taboola after serving in the Israeli Defense Forces from 2000 to 2006. He worked in one of its elite intelligence units doing research and development. Adam, welcome to OK Computer. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hey, so this has been a long time coming. You had a busy 2021. You went from being a private market founder, CEO, to a public market CEO. We're going to get to all of that. We're going to get to really what is Taboola, what is the mission of Taboola, how that's evolved over the years since starting this company more than a decade ago. I mean, the digital ad space has just exploded. We all knew it was going to be a secular shift, but the way in which it exploded is pretty amazing and how there's been a handful of companies that have really benefited dramatically from that, but then companies like yours getting in the cracks a little bit, wouldn't you say so? I mean, it's definitely been interesting couple of years and specifically, you know, last year. Where should we begin? Yeah, well, let's begin at the start. And you and I met about five years ago or so. I think yeah. there was probably a martini or two involved yeah. in that. That seems like a consistent theme with most of your longstanding relationships. I mean, and we're such good friends now. And we were introduced by a banker. Can you believe By it? an investment banker. An investment banker actually put us together. They created a huge amount of value by putting good human beings together to chat about the future of the open web. We're going to get to the open web because that's the first time I ever heard you say that I was maybe two martinis and didn't get exactly what you meant by that. But some things have evolved over the last few years since we met, and I think that's become a more important sort of thing. Let's take a step back, though. You founded this company after doing six years in Israeli defense in intelligence, right? And so you were a technical guy. You were an engineer. Yeah, I was a geek growing up in a, in a small town back in Israel, and I was fortunate to get accepted to this kind of like the... Israeli version of NSA here. So it was the unit that was in charge of protecting Israel's information from our surrounding. And so nevertheless, that was a very exciting technological journey for me, getting to know amazing people, working together, almost seven years. And then graduated out of the army. I was living in my parents' house because you don't make a lot of money in, in the, the army. army. Yeah. No. So, and I was basically 25 living in my parents' house. And I was able to save some money to buy a big screen TV. Back then, it was, I think, 27 inch. <laughs> I couldn't find anything to watch on TV, and I thought, you know, I should not be looking for TV shows. TV shows should be looking for me, and I thought there's going to be a huge opportunity to kind of build a search engine, but in reverse. Instead of expecting people to search for information, what if information could find us? Right. So back then, you're in the parents' basement, you're on the 27-inch TV, you had a couple ideas here. What did it take to put the plan in motion? Did you kick it around with some of your other technical friends here? And did you know that we were right on this precipice of this massive secular shift as it relates to mobile and social and the digital advertising space exploded with all that? I had no idea of any of those things. I was convinced that we only have 24 hours a day We'll never have more than that, and we'll never have enough time to read all the books we want to read, watch all the movies we want to watch, get to know all the people we need to know. And everyone listening to this podcast knows of exactly that moment I'm talking about when you stumble upon something and suddenly that becomes your hobby, that becomes your favorite person. Serendipity that's so beautiful that I was convinced will be as big as Google, if not more, because Google is capped by what am I searching for? What if I'm not capped by anything, by my imagination? So I was very passionate about that. And because it was my first, I've never had a job before. So I did what most good 
Jewish boys do when I have a huge revolution in mind. I went to my mom and I told her, mom, the future is going to be exactly the opposite of Google. You know, it's going to be search in reverse. People will be discovering things they may love but never knew existed. And she said, basically, whatever you're drinking, I mean, we have, we're going to have to... Uh, But let's go back to that because just before that, back in 2006, Google paid a little more than $1.5 billion for YouTube. So when you think about that, at the time, that was like a big number. I think Google had just gone public and people were like, what are they doing? There's going to be a digital ad strategy because there's going to be user-generated content. People were like, what? It was kind of a crazy sort of thing. So at the time, no one could envision that YouTube would turn into a discovery mechanism for all intents and purposes. And you were starting to have some of these same thoughts short after that. So it wasn't about searching for something. It was about that being turned back towards you. It was really about looking at what Amazon was doing. You go to Amazon for their homepage and it's just completely filled with- Like a recommendation engine. Recommendation engine, engine, right? And then you go to YouTube and you easily spend 10, 20 minutes discovering things and they do a really good job even back then figuring things I may like. So it was the idea that you had as a consumer this great experience discovering things on a very few- apps or destinations, but then when you went to the entire open web, any other website, any other app on your phone, these days, any other connected TV app on your Roku, and they don't have a similar experience as the one we see on Amazon or YouTube. Why is that? I was just like, you know, the open web, which you wanted to define, is basically anything that sits outside of Google, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter. So walled gardens is what you mean. Anything that sits outside of those walled gardens is the open web. It's about $65 billion of advertising spend a year, but check this out. It's still been monetized with banners. Do you know what a banner is? Yeah. It's that cube you never click on. And if you did, it's by mistake. If you think about banners were invented 30 years ago alongside DVDs and Tamaguchi, only DVDs and Tamaguchi went away, but banners remained the main monetization way websites make money. Meanwhile, no banners on Facebook, no banners on TikTok, no banners on Snap, no banners on Twitter. Why is that? So all the wall gardens moved on for these sophisticated, relevant advertising experiences, but then the open web is stuck in the past. Speaking of that past, you're a young man. You don't remember this. AOL and Yahoo were two of the biggest companies in the world at the time by market cap terms, and they were two, by definition, walled gardens. And it's pretty fascinating when you think about Verizon bought both of those companies, I think, for about $5 billion, X some stuff that had been cleaved off over the years or whatever. And then Apollo just bought both of those assets for a combined $5 billion. When you think about the lesson of walled gardens over the last 25 years or so, it's not particularly pretty as it relates to the web. So explain to me, open web, was that a concept in the late 2000s when you were building Taboola or was it something that evolved over time? Because I'm sure at some point you were very focused on some of these platforms that were just emerging at the time that were going to be the dominating ad platforms. And you mentioned one of the killer apps of Amazon was obviously its discovery mechanism for products, they didn't start advertising until- A few years ago. Yeah, and now it's a massive business. They're the third largest advertising company in the US. 31 billion, I think, last year. And actually, by the way, Apple is into advertising these days. Amazon is into advertising. is an amazing business, if done right. The Netflix pivot, we're going to talk about that in a little bit because I think you got some thoughts on that. It's a pretty fascinating thing, and I think it's interesting that the stock market marked it down on the acknowledgement that they're going to have to use ads after all of these years of Reed Hastings saying no ads, no ads, and the stock went down 35% in a day. Some of my smartest friends in the space, you included, actually think that this could be a really important pivot for this company going forward here. But let's just talk about, so you identified this opportunity. You said it doesn't really exist, discovering the open web. So what was 
was the first iteration of Taboola and then how has it evolved over the years? Because I see it all over the place. If I'm on CNBC.com, I get to the bottom of an article I read. It says, if you like that, you like this, powered by Taboola. And it's a bunch of articles down there. Obviously, there's some of the clicky stuff that we all click on because, of course, I want to see what Justine Bateman looks like in 2022 because I loved her on Silver Spoons in 1985. That stuff's good, right? You're seeing what Taboola thinks you should be seeing. So you should think about what you're sharing here on the podcast. Well, no, I love that show and I want to see what she looks like. Just saying. So the first iteration of Taboola was trying to solve the hardest thing, which is the technology piece. So to predict what someone might want to do next without knowing who they are, as well as them not telling you what they want to do, is a fairly sophisticated technology that you have to build. And we've been working at it for more than a decade. So that requires in less than a second identify the context you're in, people that are in your time zone, maybe your device, and looking at dozens of signals and say, out of the entire universe of things you might like, here are five of them. So that was the first thing I did. I called all of my friends you know, from the unit and I said, look, this is big and we can change the world because people will be using recommendation engines for the rest of time. So we can be the company that is doing what Amazon is doing for Amazon what Facebook is doing for Facebook, what Instagram is doing for Instagram for the rest of the world. Let's be that company that does that. So were you making the case to publishers about, about how, how users could find their content? Is that basically... Version one, which was the first five years, was just trying to get publishers to give us a chance integrating the recommendation engine. At that time, there was no advertising model. So between 2007 to end of 2011, it was mainly a recommendation engine for your own website. So if you watch one video, we would recommend more videos. I almost shut down Taboola three times during that time. Is that a heavy sales process? Well, there was no business model. 100% of businesses in the history of time went out of business only for one reason, no more money. So we couldn't generate revenue by trying to drive the value of the recommendation engine as an organic value on its own. And it was also premature. Video was still early. That's how I started this video recommendation. So it was very hard to, we were early. It was hard to generate revenue out of that. And three times, you know, I faced shutting down the company because we had a few months of living. And it was 2011 when we basically launched the advertising model, which allowed advertisers to pay us to be discovered side by side to editorial content. That was November 2011. And at the same time, we've expanded from video recommendation to article recommendation and other types of recommendations. Podcast? Uh, not yet. I want to help with the audience here, buddy. I mean, let's figure it out together. I will tell you that just as an aside, one of the things that Guy and I started this company, Resource Media, at the start of 2021, and the thing we've heard routinely is that podcast discovery is a mess. There's some huge stores, so Apple, Spotify. Again, these are these siloed things, but it's really cross-platform is really hard. There's a lot of exclusive content now. That's a great opportunity, just so you know, going forward. If you think this is a medium that's going to continue to grow, and I think we're kind of in the first inning of this sort of thing podcast. No, I love it. And I think it will be big. And discovery is always the big problem because you spend so much energy and money creating great content. But then how do you get in front of the right audience? Especially, you know, in this chaotic, overwhelming time we live in, there's just so much going on. So this discovery is even more important now than when I started Taboola. But back to 2011, we launched this advertising model. We moved in 2012. It was the first time that we generated hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, which at the time was massive. And then 2014, two years after that, we crossed the $20 million in revenue in two years. 
200 million. Okay, so at the time, in 2014, you had Facebook public for a couple years. You had Twitter public for a year. You had Google public, I think, since 05 or 06 or something like that. And those three companies were probably taking a disproportionate amount of the digital ad share. Is that probably correct? Yeah, I mean, it's up until now. And so that's the opportunity that you always saw, that you always saw that if they're going to be focused on their own silos, that obviously Google gets 90-some percent from, what, people clicking on searches. Facebook is in social. Here's what I, I saw. So one, consumers would use our product. But just to give an idea, people clicked on Taboola last year 30 billion times. We recommend to about half a billion people every day. So in America, unless you were recently born, you're using Taboola every day. We have more scale from a reach perspective than Twitter and Snap combined in terms of people we reach. So I was convinced that consumers will use it. That was one. Two, I was convinced that Banners will be replaced by something that looks like Instagram advertising experience. We're not going to have more banners. That's not where it's going. And three, I thought that the open web would love a friend, someone that's not a Google, someone that's not competing with them really for user attention. It is the attention economy at the end of the day. There's so much time we can do anything. So I think for years, publishers and companies in the open web were taken advantage by Wall Garden companies who try to grow themselves versus grow their partners. I felt that when Facebook launched instant articles, that was to host publishers' content on Facebook. And the reason Facebook did that is because Facebook is trying to grow Facebook. But then publishers at that moment in time risked being one step away from consumers. That is a problem. And I think journalism is at risk if there is no one company that can capture a lot of banner share and repurpose that in the form of great value for consumers, great value for publishers, And I think there's going to be one company, and hopefully that's Taboola, that's going to be a big chunk of the $65 billion market. It's massive. All right, so talk to me. How many advertisers are using Taboola right now? 15,000. And so how has that grown over the last few years? It's been growing steadily. So these are direct advertisers working with us. Something we're very proud of. About 90% of our revenue this year we're guiding for about $1.6 billion is coming from advertisers who work with us directly, which means they're using our own technology. We actually help them succeed. And it's not through some sort of agency or programmatic different channels that essentially put us one step away from our clients. So we're very proud of the fact that we look a lot more like a walled garden in the sense that all of Google's revenue is clients buying from Google. Facebook's revenue is client advertisers buying from Facebook. We look alike. 90% of our revenue is the same, but open web. You just used the term we guided. All right, so that's public market CEO speak right there. I've been around public markets for a very long time. So taking a step back, we just said you've had a busy couple years. I think it was probably in the middle of the pandemic. I remember Taboola, still a private company. You made a bid for your largest competitor, and then one day it hit the tape. I remember seeing it on my fax set that you called it off. Things were going really well. You didn't need them, and then you kind of switched course, and you're just like, we're going to accelerate our plan to go public, to the public markets. Talk to us a little bit about that. Obviously, it was always your plan to go to the public markets, but how has that changed? What has it been like? You're a founder, CEO. You started the company in Israel. You moved to New York City in the heart of it. You didn't move to Silicon Valley. I'd love to hear that. You want to be close to publishers. Was that the idea headquartered here in New York? Let's start with that. That's an easy one. So first of all, Silicon Valley is too far away from Israel. And Israel, that's a lot of our technology team and our pulse, you know, so I wanted to be closer to Israel so we can talk to each other a lot. I believe culture and communication are really key. And so we talk a lot and we communicate a lot. And that was a big deal. And two, I thought New York was more fun and fun matters too. And three, it's the heart of advertising and publishers and media. So if you want to be in the capital of media, New York is definitely a good candidate for that. 
So I'm very happy that I've chosen New York, but that was the New York decision. All right, quick question, because I've spent a lot of time in your offices on Madison Square Park in New York City, and it, it is a fun place, a lot of nice people, good atmosphere, but your office in Israel, in Tel Aviv, I assume, or, or no? No, it's nearby. Okay. It's probably filled with a lot of ex-IDF engineers. Is that a bit more of a serious place there? No, Israel is so vibrant. I just spent two weeks there with my family, actually, and I went to the Israeli office every day. I tried to do this once a year. I go and I try to meet 100% of the engineers once a year. It's amazing. I mean, you know, half the people come every day to the office. We have about 700 people in Israel. In Israel. In Israel. About half of them come to the office, interact with each other. The culture is so strong, and it's actually really, really fun to feel what it's like to be part of Tabula in that office. So even though there's a pandemic around the world in Israel, people really, I think, miss the human connection even more. That's really nice and fun to experience. So it's not that serious from that perspective. It's more it's more casual. I get that. I get that. All right. So talk to me about being more serious. So private market CEO to public market. What was that experience like? You were going to do some huge M&A and you didn't. And then you kind of set this course to go public. What was that period in your life like? You have offices all over the world. People were working from home. You were trying to get this ship in a direction. It's just a different muscle, I assume, right? So let's go back to the pandemic beginning because you asked about that. So it was March 15th. We all remember that day when basically everything went down. You went to sleep and you woke up and the market was just demand and everything was down 15, 20%. Then not to mention the world going through a crisis. So the first few months were tough. But then what happened was we started actually, because we were digital, we reached half a billion people a day. We were recommending things on some of the most amazing, trustworthy websites and publishers on the planet. Advertisers and businesses were really looking for growth because people could not come to their store. And we start seeing this really amazing growth coming digitally from businesses that realized that it was in many ways we were in the future. It was like 2030. Every company became digital way faster than they imagined they should have. We had a great, strong financial year. We learned also about ourselves working from home and reshaping our culture to prepare for what's to come. So that was that year. And then we went public June 30th of last year. It was a very special day here in the NASDAQ. You know, my mom flew in. Many of the people who were in Tabula early days came. You never build your company to go public or to have financial success. You build it to build a great company and to build a great product. So it's not something I ever imagined. But it's a validation of your journey, if you think about it. It is. So I know that here in America, the most innovative companies that, yeah, they've been spending longer amounts of time private. You could have still been a private company, but you do it. You come to the capital markets and you raise capital and your cost of capital is cheaper. I'll tell you why I wanted to go public. One, I thought we can be a great public company. Not many companies have the scale we have. We are actually profitable. This year, we guide for $200 million of EBITDA, and we convert over any reasonable time frame, call it two years, about 60% of free cash flow. So this is a company that actually generates cash that is growing. Last year, we grew over 30%. You know, our EBITDA margin is north of 30%. So I thought this is a company that some people can hold on to forever. And it's been the same team, like our management. We've been together for a decade. My CTO has been with me for 13 years. My COO for 10 years. So we've been through up and down. So we were, in my mind, from a cultural perspective, we were ready for a whole new journey as a public company. And I like the fact we have access to great investors. I get to meet many amazing people now who ask us good questions. If you know your stuff, you just get to learn more about your business. And you get currency and access to cash so you can dream even bigger as a public company. So all of those things I was excited about, I guess now being public almost a year, the one thing that's very different is the whole idea that you have to think about a quarter. Because when you build products and you plan for them for the next two, three years, a quarter, it's not a unit, 
that you think. So that is a new muscle. Yeah, there's a lot of investors and there's a lot of, I think, prominent XC level. People feel like the quarter to quarter focus, it's counterproductive for all intents and purposes. And I go back and forth. Some of my friends think, why should companies be solving towards every three months and make investors happy? And as an investor, though, I think you realize in just the period that we've been in over the last, let's call it two years, we've seen these two massive cycles. We saw a stock market at all-time high in the start of 2020. We saw a crash for two months. Six months later, we're back at those levels. A year after that, we're up 100%. And now here we are. The S&P is down, I want to say, almost 15% from its all-time highs. The NASDAQ's down about 22 23% from its all-time highs. And that seems like a lot in a very short period of time here in 2022. But you think about where we've come from, it's not. But then companies all of a sudden now have to answer a whole host of questions about difficult comps or decelerating metrics after a big period of pull forward or the lack of visibility because of inflation or a geopolitical situation in Europe. We're still dealing with COVID. Shanghai is still locked down. Parts of Beijing are like, so there's a lot of weird cross currents right now. So what do you think about the public markets as they are now? We didn't even mention how distorted things got with what the Fed did, the U.S. Federal Reserve, by, again, moving towards a zero interest rate policy at the start of the pandemic. Go back to that period that you just mentioned in March in 2020. None of us knew. It was a black hole. And I actually think, though, that they probably did what they should have done to avoid a credit crisis. Because the last thing you want to do is have households really ready to go under, corporations ready to go under. So they hit that kind of early, and then we had all this fiscal stimulus. The problem is that they kept their pedal on the metal here, and we just had a crazy asset bubble. The access to cash was too much. And so that's what's being repaired right now in the stock market. And if you thought we overshot to the upside a year ago, well, we might overshoot to the downside right now. That's my history with asset bubbles and then the deflation of them over the last 25 years since I've been in the market. But I'll tell you this, and we had Rick Heitzman, who's a co-host, you know, Rick at First Mark, and he's been in the private markets as a VC for, I think, over 20 years, and he's very familiar with the public markets. We were both saying part of it is like there was so much that was coming to market, whether it be regular way IPO, direct listings, via SPAC, which is the way you did. A lot of great companies came, but some just came at valuations that made sense when interest rates were at zero and it was everybody was like, rah, rah, rah. So now we're on the flip side of that. And I will tell you, ironically, we were just dealing with the pandemic a year and a half ago. Now we're dealing with a lot more because of inflation with the Fed looking to fight inflation after an unusually long period of low interest rates and now geopolitical. China. And we're also emerging. I'd love to get your take on this because you are a global company. I think we're kind of emerging as like a bipolar world now. If you think about, we always knew China had their own web, their firewall over there, but Russia will be part of that from here on out with North Korea. So we have at least Western Europe and the West really solidified against what's going on over there. I'm just curious how you're thinking about that as a global company and your ability to expand. First of all, the thing I spend the most time on with regards to what's going on in the world, which is really a lot, is mainly, first of all, our people's mental health. We have almost 2,000 employees in 22 countries. If you think about that, we've hired about north of 400 people last year, 400. Most of them have never met their manager. Think about showing empathy to a new employee who joins and have an issue. Who do you call? So when you think about running a company, and many of the listeners know that it's so much about execution. And what is execution, right? It's about having the right strategy and a group of people working together passionately towards that mission. It is so much harder now when people are not coming to the office. People are remote. People can't come to the office. 
You can't build a culture on Zoom. I promise you that. No. We will pay the price by trying to talk about things we care about on a flat screen for months and months in the future. When, I don't know. But for me, you know, culture is so important. And that's what made Tabula so successful. So you're out and about right now. You just said you're in Israel. And are you going to other offices around the world? Yeah, I'm in Germany in two weeks. When we have offsites, we're trying to have it in a place where there's an office so we can go and show our faces. And you also have to lead by example. You can't expect people to do things and then you are just in your home. I think this is a fundamental change with regards to all the things you mentioned, which is how does all of that affect companies' culture and ability to execute better than others. Meanwhile, Google tells their employees, don't come back to the office if you don't want to. That is our competition. Employees expect what Google gives, but I think it's a mistake. Let's talk about some of these big tech behemoths here, because I think this is kind of right in your wheelhouse here. You go on Squawk Box. I love our friend Max Myers. He's the senior executive producer of Squawk Box, and he brings you on whenever there is like some hot topic in the digital ad space. And you always have great takes here, man. So I want to hear this one. So last week, Netflix reported very disappointing user growth, and it was actually negative for the first time in a very long time. And the company for years, which has been around for 25 years, it was a web one darling, and then it was a web two darling when they went to streaming. And now they're going to be a Web3, well, not Web3 to use that term because it, I don't think it really it's applies taken. there. Yeah, it's taken. Right. How do you think this shift towards an ad-supported model, and there's plenty in the media space that have this sort of thing, where if you want ads, you get ads with the thing. If you don't, you have to pay a subscription. Talk to me about this pivot because the stock market, or at least investors, have not liked it. Again, we just said it was down 35% the day that they made the announcement. It kept on going lower. The stock was at $700 in the fall, it's below 200 right now. So investors clearly don't like the decelerating growth and they don't like the competition. And they don't like the spend on content. Now they say, we're going to capture a bunch of these users, which are not accounted for in our subscriber numbers. And we're going to give them an option to see it ad supported. What's your thoughts? Let me say, I don't know about investors and what they make their decision with regards to Netflix, but let me tell you what I think about Netflix as a business. One, when I'm asked about a company I really like, I say Netflix and read specifically. Read if you're listening to this, you have to give me a call. <laughs> but I'll tell you why, because it is so amazingly difficult to reinvent yourself at the Netflix size from what he did, from DVDs to online, from online to original content. It's nearly impossible to do something once. He literally did it a few times. So I would never bet against this guy. That's one. Two, when it comes to culture, the Netflix culture is strong, strong, strong. And this is a company that's built something we all use daily. And that's before they've done the following. They have not done M&A of any significance yet. They have not resolved the shared password issue, which just didn't focus on that. But that's a real problem. And three... In a world that there's $25 trillion being driven by ads, they haven't even started. And we know how big that is in the cable space. We know that Disney said they're going to get into that. So this is a company that hasn't even played with the advertising model at all. Now, I think it's an amazing move for them to do it. I think advertising experience, if done right, is amazing. Look, if Amazon became the third largest advertising company, and that's a company in the e-commerce space, if Apple on my Apple News is showing me ads, that means that some of the best consumer companies on earth believe advertising business is a good business to have. So I think Netflix has a lot of upside ahead of it. 
specifically when it comes to advertising. Yeah, well, think about this pivot. I was never on Facebook, but I hear this again and again, and this goes back to the banner ads or whatever. Why has the blue page on Facebook gone away? Well, first of all, our parents and grandparents are the only ones on there anymore, and maybe they do click on banner ads, but it's Instagram. It's the recommendation engine. It's all it is. It's the stuff that you're talking about. It's the platform that you built. And so why can't Netflix do the same thing? They will. I mean, look at TikTok becoming such a huge success here in the U.S. What is the advertising model they've had? Every bunch of post you swipe down to is a paid post. So the idea of native advertising that is at times organic, you go to Google, some of what I'm searching for is organic. And some of it feels the same, but it's paid by an advertiser. And that's a pretty big company. So if you look at all these companies, they've done a great job tapping into the advertising space the right way. And I think Netflix can do the same. You know, they can bring the power of recommendation you may like brought to you by a brand you might be actually interested in. Think about the trailer industry. Are you telling me, by the way, when you go and watch a movie, so if you're going to go and watch Doctor Strange, don't you love the trailers before the movie? Isn't it a fun thing? Yeah. I like it. But your point is this. The killer app for Netflix was that once they had you there, their tech was basically saying, if you like that, you'll like this. It's the same thing for ads. It's the same. So all they have to do is repurpose that tech or work with Taboola. I mean, one of the two. Well, uh, Reed, call Adam already, all right? This is getting a little sorry here. Just give him a call. And I like how you started out by saying, I can't speak to what investors think. I think as an investor, I'm a bit of a contrarian investor. I hated Netflix when it was skipping up $100 a month last year, which it really was doing. It went from 400 to 500 to 600 to 700. And then it basically, they have this expression in the stock market, escalator up, elevator down. And so it's not pretty. That's what happened to me. I say to myself, why would anybody bet against Reed Hastings? You've just been marked down 75%. Take a crack at it. I think that, again, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, Netflix has a lot of opportunity ahead of it. And two, not only do I think Netflix will get into advertising, I think everyone will get into advertising. I think we're going to be buying Tesla cars with news and ads, promoted things in the car. You're going to be buying a Tesla car. I'm not buying a Tesla car. I have a Tesla car. Do you? Of course. You have the one with the wings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the family. It doesn't bother you how ugly that is? It's really beautiful. The only problem I have with my Tesla, I didn't tell you, I have a Spotify button for my music, but there's no Tabula button to get Squawk Box. All right, Elon, call Adam. News will be everywhere. So that's my point is it's not only Netflix. We're going to see everyone doing... Well, that's the whole argument, I think, for if Apple were to go into cars, if they're going to go to autonomous cars, is that all of a sudden they have all these services and then it's going to be like a big iPhone that you're going to be driving in and you can just do everything and the car will drive. And that's the right word, services. A good advertising experience is a service. And by the way, at Apple, services is being run by Eddie Q, who's doing an amazing job making Apple so much more than just devices. It's a big business. And I think that every manufacturer of any device in the future will have a services business. Well, I agree. All right. So here's a company that has dramatically under-monetized their user base. They have not grown their user base. It is an ad-supported model, and it's Twitter. And for some reason, Elon Musk, who has the knack for making things happen, he sends rockets out of space and returns them on a dime. He's basically reoriented the entire global auto market towards electric vehicles. I think you would agree. He's an amazing entrepreneur. I'm sure as an entrepreneur, you're very inspired by Elon. Yeah. Yeah. And so- 
What is the interest in Twitter for? So he says it's about free speech. And this is, I think, right in your wheelhouse. So he's talking about a platform. It's not big. When you think about the fact that Facebook has nearly 3 billion, so a third of the planet, they monetize much worse than some of their big competitors. They're not growing their user base. Elon Musk is quickly becoming one of the largest followed accounts. He's got 85 million, and I think it grows by a million a day. And he's saying that he's buying this company. He's selling Tesla shares, clearly an innovative company over the last 15 years or so. He's selling Tesla shares to buy Twitter and take it private because he thinks in some way, shape, or form, there's some groups that have been disadvantaged from a free speech standpoint. So those groups are those who tampered with our 2016 election, the sorts of people that started a violent insurrection in our nation's capital because they didn't like the result of an election, hate speech, disinformation. That's sort of, So he wants to bring all that back onto the platform, and he doesn't really care about the financial model. Is this about free speech? I'm just curious your take on it because it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense to me. Speaking about Max from Squawk Box, he just brought Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank and myself to talk about that topic exactly just a few weeks ago. One, I hope Elon does not bring bad stuff on Twitter. And I say bad stuff in the sense that I'm a strong believer we need moderation. We don't want people bullied anywhere and not on Twitter. And about it, you say 200 million people is not a lot. It's a lot of people and it's very engaging. Well, they would say that those tweets get amplified all over the place. It's a lot of people and it's very engaging. One, I think nobody should be bullied. Two, I'll say it again and again and again, a thousand times, I do not want my children to make decisions about what is democracy or should they take vaccine or should they wear a mask based on a tweet or based on Spotify or based on TikTok. That is the end of the world to me. So my point is we need human moderation. And that's also why the open web and journalism matters so much. Like we need a CNBC because you want humans suggesting what's important. So to me, if there is something that gets traction on a social network, and it's not being reviewed by a moderation team, policy team, that has some sort of public policy that says this is good, this is bad. I think it's very dangerous. Now, by the way, you can decide what is your line, and you can interact with the community about how to adjust that line over time, but you need some policy. And I would argue, and I said this publicly, if I was Mark Zuckerberg, I would hire a million people to moderate. Zuckerberg's kind of interesting because he's kept a pretty low profile during all this. In 2016, I don't think they came as far as officially apologizing for relying on bots to do the moderation. Really what they were doing is using AI to combat these bot farms and stuff like that. And then they ended up in 2017 and 18 hiring a, a lot of people. And I don't know if you remember back then, their stock went down like 30-some percent. It was the largest one-day drop. They lost $100 billion in market cap because their costs went up and their monetization went down because of that. And I give them credit at the time. They took the hit. They figured out what they had to do. And I don't think there was a lot of criticism of them in 2020 the way there was in the 16 election about disinformation. There was plenty around COVID. But to your point, if you don't have human moderation and we're going to rely on AI to do it or you're going to open source the whole thing, it can really just be a cesspool. Couldn't it be like these large platforms? I think then it becomes dangerous. And actually, then I would bet against you as a platform. So to me, a platform that has no moderation of any kind and people can get hurt, people can make decisions that will impact their life negatively, to me, is something that I hope my kids don't use. So that's, to me, how fascinated I am and how passionate I am about, again, open web and journalism, because I think that's much more human-driven environment. That's free speech 
moderated by editors and writers. But you know what's funny? His beef is actually with those people because he's drawn a lot of criticism over the years, whether it be the SEC, whether it be Wall Street, whether it be journalists, the list goes on and on. And you talk about bullying. He bullies all of them. This is really, to me, I think it's settling scores. I think he knows that it's going to really aggravate this left and it's going to empower the right. And in some ways, him aligning himself with these far-right groups that feel like they've been disenfranchised by deplatforming and content moderation, I think it sets up really nasty, man. And I don't get it. And you know what? I'll tell you the other thing. We had a great investor on on the tape last week, a guy named Dan Benton, who ran a hedge fund for years called Andor. And he's a huge Tesla bull. He's long the stock. He's long the cars. He's long everything. You know what he's not long anymore? Elon. And he actually made a really good point. He said, you know what? Half of Tesla's customers in the U.S. are in California. And if he puts some of these bad actors, he buys this thing and Donald Trump and all these MAGA guys come back on here and it's just like a cesspool again, you run the risk of alienating your customers and Tesla, which I think is a really interesting point. Look, first, let me just remind us, Elon is one of the most incredible founders, entrepreneurs of all time. I mean, this guy sends rockets to space. So do I think he has a chance of making Twitter even better? Yes. From the advertising model, which I think can grow, and the user experience, and there's a lot of good things he can do, and I think just he can bring a fresh point of view to things. I like that. Two, I think, is underestimating the headache that comes with distribution of content and information to consumers. And I want to give him the benefit of the doubt that once he gets under that, he'll see all the good and bad and make decisions that are good for people. Even outside of being running Tesla and SpaceX, just because it's the right thing to do, and he's a fairly good guy. I think there's a really strong argument to be made that it's going to be a much worse platform a year or two after he takes it over. But maybe that's just for some of the power users right now, which he obviously disagrees with. Depends on what he'll do. We don't know what decisions he'll make when in effect there. Well, I suspect we'll know kind of quickly because I don't think he has a whole heck of a lot of patience. Before we get out of here, I want to hit one last topic here because I think this is totally right in your wheelhouse and it connects some of the things we were just talking about. Content moderation, disinformation, all these sorts of things. We've seen a lot of regulations started in Europe, GDPR, all that sort of stuff. Why is it that when I go to a website, and it could be the open web, it is the open web, why do I have to click on these goddamn buttons about do I accept these cookies? Like, what's going on here? You have to remember that in the open web, there's a thing called cookies, which is slowly going away. Apple has been killing cookies from 2017, I think. And uh, Google is in the way there and others as well. So in the open web, there was a thing, and there's still some of it, called cookies. And cookies have been used badly by a variety of companies over the years to create experiences that are uncomfortable for consumers, you know, following you around. and In the hope of placing ads that are more relevant to you? Yeah. So that was wrong. On the back of that, which was a decade ago, really, different things happened. Apple basically deprecated cookies, and GDPR in Europe came about, which helped consumers be aware, CCPA in California, and all those things. I think that's a good thing. We're kind of like going back to contextual. It's not about who I am. It's what am I reading about as a proxy for what am I interested in. This is where I think the advertising industry is going. By the way, we also saw what happened to Facebook when Apple deprecated uh, IDFA, which was their SDK between apps that allowed Facebook and others to target you between your apps. We never knew that when we buy a pizza on one of these apps, Facebook gets a signal. Nobody told us. So that was the app tracking. That was the thing that Apple put an end to. And so we just saw a bunch of these huge ad platform companies just take big hits. This is what happened to Facebook. This is why it basically has been cut in half. And I think we're on that journey. Privacy 10 years ago was a thing that general counsels talked about. It was a legal thing. Now it's a consumer thing. 
My mom knows what privacy means. She wants to feel safe when she browses the websites that she loves. So I think it's a great thing for consumers. And it just forces everyone to build a great business on the back of a safe internet. So that goes also through moderation, which we talked about. It goes through privacy, which we want the things to be private. And I'm encouraged about also our position at Tabula because we are the contextual company. All we do is we look at what you read and people who read things like you and what helped them discover things they like. Much like Amazon, people who buy this also bought that. It has nothing to do with your gender. In any case, we lie to Facebook about what we love and who we are you know, all the time in any case. So all I'm saying, it's a much actually closer version to who I am as a person and my curiosity, the open web. Yeah, well, listen, Adam Segolda, I've had the pleasure of getting to know you over the last five years. I call you a dear friend. You're building a great company. And I know that this journey over the last couple of years, you've had explosive growth after the craziest point of uncertainty that you and all your CEO peers have had. No one knew what was going to happen in the start of 2020. You operated in really difficult circumstances. You've grown your company. You've created a great culture. And I think your views on the open web are something that I think need some more air. And I hope you come back and talk about it. We've spent a lot of time discussing just the travails of of Google, of Facebook, of Twitter, of Snap. You probably don't get this. You ever see The Big Lebowski, the movie The Big Lebowski? You know, the cowboy, he goes, well, it's good to know that the dude's out there. It's good to know that Tabula's out there, buddy. (laughs) All right, man. Well, I hope you come back, buddy. All right? Thanks. Thanks, pal.